there's a tendency to say pharaonic origins, yada, 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 Muhammad Ali, <laughs> and ignore centuries of intervening history and then start at like the French conquest and Muhammad Ali. Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Baladins Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnitska, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are our regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about Baladins art form. Plus, I really like like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Have you ever considered adding a fitness element to your belly dance classes? That's one of the typical reasons why students come to a dance class at first place, to improve their physicality. Imagine how much your teaching business can benefit if you know how to combine these two elements together, dance and fitness and how to emphasize it in your marketing strategy. And that's exactly what Orit teaches at her Sharky the Belly Dance Workout Instructors Academy. You live with razor-sharp teaching skills and best practices for your teaching business project. The next Sharky Instructor Academy starts on April 3rd, so apply ASAP to secure your spot. More info at sharky.com teach. S-H-A-R-Q-U-I dot com slash teach. Sharky dot com slash teach. Direct link in the show notes. Today's episode is one of those conversations that cover so many different topics, although it has one connecting thread throughout our conversation. It's trying to figure out where is uh, opinions, myths, misunderstandings, and where are actual historical records available to us about belly dance, about stuff related to belly dance. And I'm very happy to have an opportunity to talk with our today's guest, Nisa, who is a Middle Eastern dance instructor, performer, and researcher based in St. Louis, Missouri. Nisa's mission is to foster a greater understanding and appreciation of the complexity, diversity, and beauty of Middle Eastern dance forms. As a researcher, Nisa focuses on the history of Egyptian dance and its professional practitioners. Her investigations into the transition from Awalim and Gawazi dance styles to classical Raksharki at the turn of 19th 20th centuries led to the publication of her first book, Egyptian Ballet Dance in Transition, the Raksharki Revolution, 1890-1930, which was published in 2018. And although I will repeat it several times during the interview, I would right away say that this book is one of the must-reads for everyone who is practicing belly dance, curious about belly dance, want to know more about belly dance. But in our today's conversation, we will talk about really different range of topics, starting from sensuality, sexuality, and eroticism in belly dance from historical point of view, like, is it connected, is it not connected, which place each of these elements has in this dance style, 
We also will talk about Nisa's uh, research and activities and how she got into activity of research and specifically Baladin's topic. And of course, many things related to her research that she put in the book, as well as many publications and online lectures that she's currently doing, including what is the difference between Awalim and Gawazi, how they're connected to Raksharki, what was the role of Badia Masabni in the history and evolution of modern Baladin style, and what the term of Raksharki is itself, and many, many, many more things and subjects that I am pretty sure you will be surprised and you will find out a lot of new information for yourself. And I also want to remind you that Nisa is constantly doing online lectures on different topics, so do check her website, do check her social media, links will be all in the show notes check her patreon account as well for any updates for any upcoming events lectures and materials it's one of the amazing resources available for us as dancers to learn more about history and culture of this dance form and of course don't forget to get her book if you haven't read it yet make sure you get a copy and do it because this is one of the main sources as and as i said must read for all ballet dancers this is egyptian ballet dance and transition the ragsharki revolution 1890-1930 and before we dive into the interview i just want to remind you that don't forget after you listen to it screenshot and share with your friend share maybe what you liked or what was the most interesting element that you got out of it the more people get this knowledge the more people get this information the more benefits our baladins industry receives in general and this is both mission of nisa to spread information spread awareness as much as she can as well as the mission of this podcast to spread information have discussions share knowledge and try to fill gaps in our understanding and our available information about the dance genre that we all practice and we all love. On this note, let's dive in. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends, and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes, or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free. Welcome to the Balladance Life podcast. I'm really happy to welcome you here, Anissa, and thank you so much for taking time. And I'm really excited about our today's conversation. I know for sure, guaranteed, it's going to be really cool. <laughs> I'm excited to talk and I, I'm sure uh, you will find that I can't be shut up very easily. <laughs> That's totally fine for me, and I'm ready to go in all the geeky um, sides and aspects of whichever topic it will go yes. through and flow. But before we start geeking about belly dance, I would love to ask uh, 
um, a little bit about your personal history with dance. So how did you got involved in ballet dance? Do you remember the first interaction or the first moment you thought like, oh, I want to go and study it? Like, how was the very beginning of your personal dance story? Um, it's, it's an, in, well, maybe not an interesting story, but, um, you know, at the time I started, I was actually a graduate student in anthropology at the University of Illinois. And it was a very stressful time in my life. I'll say it was even a sort of a dark time in my life. And I was looking for something to take me away from that. And I, at the time, I really enjoyed what I would call world music. And, um, and I really, like a lot of people who find their way into this, I had sort of a fantasy idea of what it was and where it came from. And it just seemed so outside of anything I'd ever done and a great escape. So I started looking around and I never expected to find someone locally there. I thought I'd have to drive a few hours away um, because the, the campus where I was was literally in the middle of corn and soy fields in central Illinois. Um, but there was a teacher in that town who'd been a dancer for, at that time, 20-something years. She'd started in the... Uh, California American cabaret tradition. And I called her up, you know, this is before cell phones, before anything, <laughs> called her up and I made an appointment for a private lesson because she wasn't doing group classes at the time, which was honestly better for me. Um, and I went to her farmhouse on a Sunday for my first lesson and I didn't know what to expect. And I, took that lesson and I walked out of there saying to myself, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. And here I am. <laughs> you mentioned that that professor was a dancer. Was she specifically a ballet dancer? And was, did you know which dance style? Like, uh, I lost a yeah, little bit of I, that part. Uh -huh. I was seeking out belly dance, whatever that meant to me at that time, which I had before that time, I was in my early 20s and I had never done any kind of dancing before then. Just dancing at a nightclub, you know, I never taken dance classes when I was a child. I, nothing like that. I was an awkward kid, um, last picked in gym class kid. Um, so it was outside of the realm of anything in my experience but I knew I wanted belly dance and uh yeah she was uh, I chose her because of her experience in that again what I thought it was <laughs> at that time you know I have just a funny like side note remark when you mentioned oh like uh, that you never took dance classes you just dance at nightclub the first reaction how much we are in our ballet dance world and mindset the first like of thought of my like wait but performing at nightclub and I was like oh no people actually go to dance at the nightclub <laughs> just for fun <laughs> Um, I'm still very curious, uh, back then, I'm pretty sure your understanding of ballet dance changed uh, drastically. 
but if you remember what was that attractive thing why you you felt like oh i want baladin specifically and uh looking back on all these years that you are in belly dance and researching and dancing and performing did belly dance actually met your expectations and i'm not talking about surface level but we have always this deep internal uh, like search that brings us to belly dance that on surface may feel like or oh, look superficial but like I'm talking about also not only superficial like um, expectations which we all have and it's normal especially with, if you don't know about things but also this internal such did belly dance actually met uh, your expectations that you had in the very beginning of your journey do you know I feel okay so first I'll address what my expectations were <laughs> which were I, I I'll be honest are now embarrassing but I you know my stereotypical vision was it was something exotic it was something uninhibited um it involved a lot of uh i'm gonna say sensual movement of the torso which i was really intrigued by and i loved again the idea of moving to exotic musics I'll just say music's plural because again, at that time I was, you know, we had a, at that time, a, a bookstore called Borders Books, which I used to while away my hours at <laughs> this place, sifting through their world music section and finding new things to, to experiment with. And yeah, I think if I boiled it down, it was, exoticism and uh, kind of a relaxed inhibition um, because I was also kind of an introverted and shy person. And as far as has it met those expectations, I would say it's gone beyond those expectations because the reality has been so much more fulfilling than the fantasy was, but also I've grown up a lot. <laughs> since those times and so my expectations have shifted a lot from what I needed at that time in my life so both things have the goalposts have moved I guess mm -hmm. <laughs> since uh, we already kind of you kind of already mentioned this aspect of uh uh, sensuality, essential movements, and balance, etc. I would like to ask you, and I kind of feel you are the, the right person to bring up this topic, uh, which kind of feels a little bit sensitive, especially in balance world uh, right now, because on one side, there are a lot of stereotypes, like, oh, about sexualization of ballet dance, ballet dancers, all the stereotypes which we are trying to fight. But on the other hand, very often, especially inside ballet dance community, we go to a completely opposite extreme saying, oh, ballet dance has nothing to do with uh, sensuality, sexuality, like, it's not about that, like, etc. Like, really pushing it away to, like, extreme, extreme. Um, and... I know you are actually even doing the whole lectures on this topic, so I'm not asking yeah. to return the lectures, but I'm curious, like, in your, like, where, what's your opinion? Where do you stand in terms, like, belly dance and not only sensuality, but also sexuality? Does this sure. dance have anything to do with it? 
Sure. And short answer, yes, 100%. But, you know, again, I, I would say uh, my thinking on this has evolved so much because, again, when I started, I started with a fantasy and I started wanting to fulfill some personal needs that I had. And, you know, when at that time, I... I, my my way of thinking very much aligned with the, this is a statement you hear a lot, especially in the U.S. dance community, uh, belly dance is sensual, not sexual. So in my mind, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to claim this sensual aspect, but I'm not like those women over there, you know, that <clears throat> are, you know, crossing a line into vulgarity and um blatant sexuality and then time went by and i did research and you know my academic brain which for some reason when i started all this was completely detached from my dance life i brought it back and those two parts of my life kind of reintegrated and i i realized ooh i i've been saying this to myself but now i'm looking at the cultural reality, and there's a lot of sex in this. And there, it's not that sexuality and eroticism have to be in it, but they often are part of it. It's, it's an overlap. You know, belly dance in Egypt, you can think of the dance itself as, as a blank slate, but it, it carries different meanings in different contexts and different performance settings, um, different class settings, the, the choices of individuals and what they feel comfortable with. And the other side of that is in Egyptian traditional entertainment, there's also lots of sex <laughs> in um, things like, um, historically what's called shadow play and um even puppet shows had a lot of gratuitous uh sexuality and eroticism and that was part of traditional entertainment because it's part of life so i realized like hey why are we trying to erase this you know it's fine if it if it's not to your taste but taste and fact are different things. Opinion and fact are different things. So we can't deny that it has been a part of the dance tradition for a long time, and it's gonna to continue to be so. So I do try to kind of crusade now about, like, let's stop being judgy judgy about Cairo dancers and how they're moving and what they're wearing. This isn't an innovation. This has been part of it for centuries. Mm -hmm. That's my babbly answer to your question. <laughs> no, like that's interesting point of view. And uh, it just reminds me that uh, just like in many other conversations, it's almost never really about the dance style or the art style itself. It's about person who uses it. So in this case, it's a dancer and there are all these uh, possibilities, but it also, uh, reflects this discussions and this like all these conflicts they also reflect certain taboo on the topic of sensuality and sexuality in both uh, 
Western and Eastern societies all over the world and uh, um, how much even in the West, like in the Western countries, people think, oh, we are so progressive, but to the limit, to the like one story, like uh, I remember like a friend from Southern Arabic country and she was traveling uh, to some European countries, like without like mentioning any countries, but it was a, a dance festival and then she comes in a dress uh, thinking, oh, it's a gala show, I can show off. And the organizer kind of like, ah, you know, this is not really okay to wear. And then she was like, wait, but at our parties, underground parties in my like Arabic country, like I'm wearing this. What do you mean I cannot go in a European country to a ballet dance gala show like this? But yeah. And she was really extreme. It kind of like, like that, that situation that everyone like very progressive, open-minded, we think European country. And then she comes out thinking it's totally okay. And then I kind of get tense, like, oh, it's on the edge. So it's not even about belly dance itself. It's more reflecting this pushback to, to the topic and all these taboos that cultures in all countries pretty much i mean i will not say all countries around the world but most of them have and kind of psyched in our minds that oh but this is not okay without if, if you dig into it like then it start question oh but why is it not okay what's wrong exactly with this is it really about the yeah. subject or yeah. is it about control of someone over like oh here don't go like in this topic yeah i think so much of like the current discourse about because you hear this a lot right in the belly dance industry of oh the art is being vulgarized it's being degraded and yada 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 and that says so much more about the agendas of the people saying that than about the real history of the dance you know it's saying so much more about our own cultural biases and baggages and personal attitudes and personal experiences, you know, and that's why I, I do like to say, like, it's okay to not like a mini skirt costume or a cat suit. It's fine. But you can't say that this is a degradation, um, that this is deviating from some pristine era of respectability in the dance because dance has never been respectable in Egyptian society. What, where in history has it ever been respectable? So it's, we've got to, to detach opinion from historical reality and, and then it's fine to have the opinion, but, I, I, it just, it does distress me when you see like all this disparaging of working dancers who are just doing a job, you know, and catering to their market. And it's like, just leave them alone. <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes when I read some of the nasty, nasty comment threads, you know, a video will be circulating of some famous dancer like, Oh, I can't believe that she's wearing that. I can't believe she's moving like that. Like, and 90% of the time that's coming from other female dancers. Exactly. Exactly. 
And like, what are we doing? And we are forgetting that even a couple generations before, like showing a skirt which is a little bit above your ankles would be a scandalous thing, like showing your ankles. Exactly. And now, we can, yeah, like, of course, there are like extremes and limits, not even limits, like it's more like a decision of person. But another conversation that comes back to on my mind, one uh, thing that... Um, which is more question to you because I'm not really an expert much in this topic, but it was an interesting years and years ago. I remember having with someone this conversation that at some point we can also think, oh yeah, we can look at belly dance and all this like open costumes and, and all these movements as like sexualization of belly dance. But from another point of view, it might have been belly dance as a tool of protest and as a tool of... Uh, fighting for like female decision to what to do with her body and i remember that conversation was specifically about uh about dina like i typically don't uh, bring up examples specific examples on the podcast about other people but i think this is really like admirable something and i remember there many years ago like there was a lot of these conversations about something because dina influenced belly dance world so much and there was yeah. a lot of discussions even like we call Dina bra, like when she started putting all this super open bra. And of course, most of the conversations and discussions were like, oh my God, how she can wear something like that. And at the same time, I remember one conversation and, and one uh, woman said, yeah, but you forgetting that it's her also statement, how much pressure she may have from yeah. doing all the work which she's done publicly. But she says, no, I will do it my way and just think about this idea of doing this statement openly through her dance through showcase of her body in the egyptian society with all these limitations that is put in that society so it can be viewed and i'm not saying this was the case because i don't know what was her like case or etc but everything can be viewed actually from both perspectives all the time that's that's the point i'm trying to make mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I feel, look, any woman who embarks upon the career of being a professional belly dancer in Egypt, um, any, and of course it's a little different if it's a non-native person, but particularly for a native Egyptian woman who, who embarks upon that career already her existence is a statement, you know, whether she chose the career, because a, a lot of those women, it's a career that they didn't choose. It, it was a career of necessity, but their very existence, their very, um, you know, their endurance of all that is, is a statement, right? Because everything they're, they're doing is pushing up against, things that are normative in their society. So I really, really admire the professional dancers in Egypt at all levels of the society. And it's one of the reasons it's like, uh, we need to temper criticism with that understanding of how difficult it is to live that life and do that work in, in their society. Really, I'm amazed at the strength, honestly. Uh, and I also feel that this uh, topic of political pressure on belly dances 
I feel especially because of the sensual and sexual aspect of power that can be that can come out of belly dance and female entertainer performing and dancing but this is not a topic of only today's it was like throughout the history and i know that you highlighted uh, very often in your work uh, one misconception among belly dance society that we think that oh only you know, there was one ban on public uh, performers uh, uh, by uh, Muhammad uh, Ali Basha, but actually that was not the first and uh, probably not the last in the history <laughs> of, the, of the world uh, and Egypt specifically. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's, you know, when you look at the historical record, there is evidence for centuries of uh, government action against professional entertainers. And not just female professional entertainers, but males as well. But, but in general, it, it does seem like female professional entertainers got targeted a lot uh, by the government because again, it's that idea that, uh, you know, women's sexuality is, is uh, very dangerous and very powerful and needs to be channeled into appropriate social context. So, um, I think maybe that we could we could go off on that tangent, but uh, of why women's bodies are are such a fixation for for governments through the ages. But yeah, I I think that um, what frustrates me a lot in historiography about Egyptian dance is that <laughs> there's a tendency to say. Pharaonic origins, yada, 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 Muhammad Ali, <laughs> and ignore centuries of intervening history and then start at like the French conquest and Muhammad Ali. And, you know, those circumstances of the late 18th, early 19th century didn't emerge out of a vacuum. And um, so, yeah, they're... they're when when folks say things like uh, you know the dance is being degraded and vulgarized, we need to get back to respectability. Again, when you look at the the totality of the historical record, dance has never been a respectable occupation in Egyptian society for centuries, through you know from the Islamic conquest onward. So. <laughs> but for some reason folks like to ignore all that intervening history yeah but it's also this um i think very confusing conflict that we see in egyptian society that it's not respected uh, actually as like profession or as a um, person maybe who who does it but it's also loved so much it's so paradoxical isn't it yes. um and it's interesting that, you know, and the entertainers themselves are desired and uh, beloved and uh, big celebrities. Of course, we know this, right? But yet it's it's a love-hate dynamic, right? They're, an entertainer is so necessary in many ways because that entertainer 
can do things and express things that ordinary people can't because of social norms. So the entertainer becomes kind of the outlet for expression. This is definitely the role of the dancer in weddings. So the, you know, so going back to the sexuality aspect, so much of the overt sexuality of the dance shows up in wedding contexts because weddings, let's be honest, are about the sexual union of the couple. And so the dancer becomes the person who is able to embody and express that because the polite women at the wedding can't, right? So it becomes the job of the dancer to convey all that meaning and to celebrate it and to wink, wink, nudge, nudge the, the, the married couple um, about what's going to happen later on, you know? So I, it, it is definitely a paradoxical relationship. Love and hate, is, a love-hate relationship is always how I describe it. In your opinion, why do you think the topic, or not even the topic, but the actual thing, like female sensuality and sexuality is so scary in so many cultures and communities? I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> I wish I had the answer to that question, but I, um, you know, from the research that I've done, and I definitely would encourage everyone, uh, particularly on this subject to read, uh, Karen Van Newkirk's, uh, a trade like any other and how, uh, she invokes other scholarship to help kind of ex pin down why female entertainers in particular are so, so problematic in uh, Egyptian society. And it really does seem to boil down to constructs of the female body and female sexuality. And the, the idea that that sexuality is so powerful that if it's not contained in appropriate context, it can actually disrupt society and bring society down. <laughs> and, uh, Whereas male sexuality is not viewed the same way. Um, in fact, the male sexuality needs to be in some ways protected from female sexuality because of its power. So, uh, and this, uh, by the way, to be clear, I'm not casting stones here at Egyptian culture because, oh boy, do, do we here in the West need to get our houses in order? Oh yeah. <laughs> with regards to uh, the way we view uh, uh, women and sexuality in general. So, yeah, we have a lot of our own problems <laughs> to resolve. But, yeah, it's, it is really fascinating, almost worldwide, <laughs> all those scary, scary women. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm pretty sure it's also this topic is uncomfortable, even, like, uh, for listeners, maybe for some of the listeners right now, to even, like, to listen and think about it and it definitely not anything specific uh, about Egypt it's about every single country just in every country it will manifest in different ways in this case we are talking also about dance so it is very closely related how it manifests in Egypt but there are many different 
forms of how it manifests in their life, just like in any, absolutely any other country. It's something that just uh, goes through worldwide in, in certain capacity. I think, too, it's the issue that uh, any kind of transgression of normative constructs of gender makes people nervous. Okay, so it's uh, it, to a similar extent why the history of male performers has been so uncomfortable, I think, for people out outside of Egyptian culture or outside of the Middle East and North Africa to wrap their minds around that that's a thing um, that that existed. Uh, gender transgression is uncomfortable for a lot of people. And so, yeah, that's definitely at the heart of it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we already start talking about some books and you mentioned some reading suggestions, but you also, you have an amazing book and you're also known for it, um, Egyptian Dance in Transition. And I remember uh, this book and the complete, uh, name of the Rock Sharky Revolution of 1890 <laughs> to 1930. And I remember that book was also one of the resources for me back when I was studying at university and doing my research, also dedicating it to belly dance, to Rock Sharky and uh, the books that you mentioned, but also your book had a big influence. So from the point of view, taking a private classes with your professor in university, to the point that you start really digging into research of this dance. What happened? Like, why did you feel like you know the art? Because you came to dance just to, let's say, find some ease, get little distraction from the stress of day-to-day -day life. And suddenly you're digging into really deep topic and activity as research and dance. And not just for curiosity, you actually put in publications, books, like really going deep into that. So what was your initial push to go and do research? And how was it in the very beginning, like starting this first research and steps? Sure. I, so the first few years that I was dancing, um, I, again, I had this kind of split brain. I had the brain that was part of my academic training. My training is in history and anthropology. I, I, I mean, that was my life, was research, academic research. But this dance brain was separated off because of my personal life at the time. Again, everything I was doing with dance was to satisfy personal, psychological, and emotional needs. And it took really my life settling down. That was one aspect. So my life settled down. And then as my life settled down, uh, my brains started to talk to each other again. And I started to experience um, a lot of cognitive dissonance where things that I had been taught by belly dance teachers began to conflict with what I was experiencing, interacting with Egyptian and Arab people. And, um, you know, I was starting to feel the twinges of interest in, you know, historical topics and things. And 
Um, and I started drifting further and further in, in, and pretty soon my academic brain was being brought more and more to bear on what I thought I knew. And I was realizing, oh my goodness, you know, things that I had been taught as fact, like that this was a dance that was by women and for women and um, this it's sensual, not sexual, blah, 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 all these kinds of things. Um, I've started to find contradictions to those ideas. And pretty soon the, the cognitive dissonance was becoming overwhelming. And I realized, okay, I've got to start figuring this out because I'm at a point, like I'm at a kind of fork in the road where I, I am either going to just put blinders on and continue to live in this fantasy, or I'm going to figure out what this really is. And so I started seeking out more of that knowledge. I, um, I discovered uh, Sahra Kent's uh, Journey Through Egypt course. Uh, I took the first, I started that series and that was a sea change uh, because I realized, oh, wow, okay, there's, you know, just the, this, not only, you know, this um, aspects of belly dance that I don't understand, but there are aspects of other Egyptian folklore that I don't understand. So that really sent me off uh, deeper and deeper. And, and I really, I think because I, of my academic background and I'm always somebody who's been interested in the past. Uh, I, it was kind of natural interest to want to know, well, how did we get from traditional entertainers at weddings like Gawazi and Awalim to Tahe Karaoke? You know, how there was a lot of common knowledge understanding of that transition. But then I, I'm looking at, I started looking at period sources and, and it didn't line up with, you know, Badia Masabni started it all and Hollywood invented the Bedla and blah, blah, blah. And none of the evidence lined up with that. And the more evidence I collected, the more I realized, okay, I've got an alternative narrative here. I need to write this down. Mm -hmm. So, so that's sort of the process that it took. It was a gradual waking up. <laughs> that's how I would describe it. I know we used in this conversation a couple of terms that I'm pretty sure for some of the listeners may be very new, uh, especially like everyone at different stages of the Baladin's journey. So, um, can uh, you clarify a little bit uh, the difference in terms between Awalim and Gawazi? And I will also add one more, Gazia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, uh, I definitely, in any case, would encourage uh, people to buy your book because it's one of the must-reads. So no need to retell the book, but share as much as you want. We have all the time that you have, all the time in the universe. <laughs> Well, look, I'll give I'll try to make this as short as possible because it's it's actually quite a complicated explanation because really who the Awalim and the Gawasi were changed over time. Okay. If we go back 
back, back, back before, <laughs> oh, before the French conquest. If we go back to the Ottoman era, uh, the Awalim and the Gawazi were two different classes of female professional entertainers. I would throw out there also that there were male professional entertainers at that time as well. Uh, there, but well, I'll deal with them later. Okay. <laughs> but they were kind of the male counterparts mm -hmm. to the Awalam and the Gawazi. But the Awalam at that time, before the early 19th century, were female entertainers who entertained the elites of Egyptian society, typically within the household. Uh, these were women who sang and recited poetry and danced and, uh, you know, satisfied all the entertainment needs of uh, the elite households. Um, to be clear, though, the, the Awalim themselves were not high class. Um, entertainers were never high class, but their clientele were high class. And they had a little more social esteem because of who they performed for and because typically they performed in private settings. These women were actually uh, the inheritors of a long legacy of female slave entertainers. And that's another story for another time. But uh, from as early as the Abbasid era, uh, it was common for elites to retain female slaves, including female slave entertainers. Slavery gradually uh, declined in Egypt, um, and the Awalam, who were free entertainers, kind of filled that role for the elites and the nobility. Uh, to be clear, Awalam is a plural word. The singular of that is Alma. The flip side were the Gawazi, and uh, the singular of that word is Gazia. So Gazia is one, Gawazi are more than one, and the Gawazi were the entertainers of the masses. Um, they were the entertainers of everybody else. And so they were performing in more public settings, like in festivals and markets, but also in the weddings and other kind of life cycle celebrations of the poor. So they were seen as less esteemed because their clientele were the poor and because they performed out in public in mixed gender spaces, right? Over time, there was already some overlap between these categories. They were never really discrete categories. We've sort of made them that way in the way we talk about them. But in the early 19th century, um, of course, we had Muhammad Ali. And while there were bans on female entertainers at earlier periods in Egyptian history, what made Muhammad Ali's ban, uh, well, the process of the ban a little different was, you know, typically what happened in the past was the government would uh, repeal the tax on female entertainers. Mm -hmm. What that meant was that they were effectively banned, okay? And then once the tax was reinstituted because it was a really lucrative tax, everything went back to normal. Well, the ban of Muhammad Ali 
repealed the tax, but when the tax came back, regulation never really went away. So after Muhammad Ali, the government continued to impose different kinds of regulation on female entertainers, where they could perform, when they could perform. So over the course of the 19th century, you saw kind of a shift in who the Awalam and the Gawazi were. It, there was more and more overlap between their audiences, their performance spaces. So by the end of the 19th century, the Awalam were popular entertainers, again, entertainers for the middle and lower classes, but associated with urban Cairo and urban Alexandria, whereas the Gawazi were the entertainers of the rural Fellaheen, the, the peasantry in the countryside. And to this day, you know, the word Awalam is kind of outdated. Nobody in Egypt really uses that word. But if you say it, there's a, an an understanding that it's connected to places like Muhammad Ali Street in Cairo. So like urban popular wedding entertainers, where if you say the word Gawazi, that's associated with the rural villages. So in post 19th century, Awalam are urban popular entertainers, Gawazi are uh, rural popular entertainers. Somewhere around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries, these women started to make their way into music halls and theaters, which were new venues in urban Cairo and urban Alexandria. And it's in that kind of crucible that the stage form of belly dance that we all recognize developed from those traditional styles. The Awalam continued uh, in urban Cairo and urban Alexandria for a long time. Their tradition, though, faded away and disappeared probably around the 1990s. The Gawazi still exist in Upper Egypt. Uh, in Lower Egypt, they've all been replaced by uh, Rakasat, Raksharki dancers. So that's that's as short as I can make that history. <laughs> Sure, sure. Thank you so much. I'll dig a little bit deeper, first of all, in the history. So, uh, do you know about any other categories of female entertainers back then? Or was it just Awalim and Gawazi? Because Gawazi, if, again, I'm talking about belly dancers. When we say Gawazi, we think about um, nomadic traveling tribe that at some point arrived to Egypt, settled and decided to use dance as a part of profession to become many women from that culture became professional entertainers for Egyptians. But uh, it's more like about specific culture that became used its dance to for entertaining purposes. Uh, and then we talk about Awalim more like as a profession now. Like, of course, now there is more and more awareness about the dance style, how they danced, but it's more associated with like, you know, little professional career, like a role. So that's why I'm curious to know, you mentioned there are male professional dancers, but back then, did we have any other categories of female professional dancers or it was just these two and it was more not only used for like specific dance style let's say gawazi but more like for the um to indicate with which class this entertainer the class of society this entertainer will work with 
Sure. Um, there were other categories and, you know, it's, it's much more complicated than it's traditionally been represented in uh, Western belly dance writing. Right. And, uh, you know, honestly, my own understanding of it continues to evolve. I mentioned uh, previously the slave entertainers, um, a general term for uh, for female slaves at that time uh, in medieval, we'll say medieval Egypt was uh, Jawari or Gawari. Uh, but within that group was a specific subset called the Pian who were the elite, quote unquote, uh, slave entertainers, elite in the sense of they were um, they were very well trained um, and they were very desired and they commanded very high prices on the slave market. But remember, they were slaves. Right. So. Um, that practice declined for a number of reasons, but we do have evidence that. Uh, elite households were still retaining some slave entertainers even into the 19th century. So the practice didn't entirely disappear, even when we have documentation of the Awalim. Um, alongside the Awalim and the Gawazi too, at the end of the 18th century, there is documentation of a category of entertainer called the Jenk or Jenkeya. And that is, uh, that's not an Arabic word. It's an Arabization of a Turkish word, uh, which I will probably mispronounce. I apologize to Turkish speaking listeners, but Chengi, um, because in the Ottoman era, uh, the Ottoman conquerors also had their own tradition of male and female entertainers. And they had a unisex, uh, term chengi for both the men and the women. Um, but in Arabic, that uh, that's under the term jank or the feminine jenkeya. Uh, from what I understand from the sources that I've been able to find, um, a jenkeya was typically a Jewish woman who played the rababa and the frame drum who sang and who also taught other women how to dance. Um, the word jank though was also used in Egyptian Arabic for male entertainers who assumed female mannerism and female dress and who were of foreign ethnicity. And their counterpart was the chawal, which a caveat that that word in the present day is a slur in Egyptian Arabic, so don't bandy it about. But at the turn of the 18th and 19th centuries, the Khawal was a male entertainer who assumed feminine mannerism and dress, but of native Egyptian ethnicity. So lots and lots of categories. Uh, and um, it's likely that there were some female singers who didn't really engage much with dance. We have some evidence of that from guild lists at the time. Um, but honestly, when we go back in time, uh, 
prior to the 20th century, um, it's very difficult to find very discrete occupational categories like this is a singer, this is a dancer, because even in the present day, the remaining Gawazi must be able to sing, right? Um, you're never really just a dancer. You're also singing and telling jokes and all that sort of thing too. So, so yeah, the situation was pretty socially complex. Thank you really so much for clarifying and uh, like clarifying all these terms also, uh, because um, there is indeed very narrow um, understanding of very complex history of dance and ballet dance. And I'm not talking even about like ancient times, I'm talking literally a couple of centuries ago, what was really happening, what was preparing for the evolution of ballet dance of Raksharki, how we see it today. Uh, I know also that um, listeners will not forgive me if I will not uh, ask uh, something that you mentioned, another misconception which is very popular that, oh, but Yama Sabuni started it all and Hollywood uh, introduced bad luck, which uh, <laughs> I would also ask you uh, to clarify a little bit. Um, because this is something that we kind of learn and taught from teachers to, to, to students, uh, so many writings, they are talking about that. So, um, so if it was not Badia Masabni, who was it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is uh, the, the thing, I think that in the Western dance community there, and I think this speaks to Western cultural attitudes of looking for a single source, like, you know, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb, right? So who invented Rock Sharky? And, um, and even light bulb story is not that simple, right? So, you know, really, Badia Masabni was a product of her time, okay? So in that turn of the 19th and 20th century time frame, there were these new venues that were springing up in, especially in Cairo, but in Alexandria as well, that were dedicated venues for enjoying entertainment. This was, uh, there, there were venues like this even as early as the French conquest, but up until I'll say about the 1870s, they were targeted at European consumers. But in the latter part of the 19th century, native Egyptians began to develop venues of their own that presented entertainment that was of interest to an indigenous consumer. And particularly in those venues, the local dancers, the Awalim, the Goazi, were able to find work because again, Post Muhammad Ali, the government was really heavily regulating where female dancers could perform. And for a variety of reasons, they were able to find work in these venues. And um, once they were in the venue, they were in an environment that was very different from anything that had come before, because up until that time, you only see a belly dancer if you're invited to a wedding or if you go to the Moolid or 
something like that. Now, if you can pay for the admission, you can see it whenever you want. And so automatically, this is a place of innovation, okay? So in these music halls, in these theaters, Egyptians are experimenting with, okay, how do we, let's try this, or let's add this, or, um, you know, that, that, that thing that that French group is doing is interesting. Let's take ideas from that and merging it in and, and hybridizing with their indigenous styles of song, of music, of dance, of comedy, et cetera, et cetera. So already by the 1890s, you have Egyptian dancers on these stages. Badia Masavni, uh, the first time she came to Cairo was in, I think the 19 teens. And then she ended up uh, moving there permanently and was there permanently in the 20s. And she was uh, at that time working, she bounced around in a couple of different theatrical troops. But in the 20s, she began working with uh, Nagib al-Rahani who is a very, very famous uh, actor and playwright and comedian. And they actually ended up married. Um, and I think they married mid-20s, anyway, the mid-1920s. Well, she learned a lot from Nagib al-Rahani. And so when they split up, as to my knowledge, they never officially divorced, but they split. As soon as they split, she opened a competing entertainment hall about two or three doors down from his um, in 1926. And when she opened, she didn't even really have dancing at the beginning. So dancing was already a thing in those venues. Um, innovation and hybridization was already a thing. So... What Badia Masamni did was she saw what worked, what sold, right? And she then took it to the next level. What I, what I think is special about Badia Masamni is that she was able to, to sniff out the, the most successful trends of the day and become better at it than anyone. Right. So she didn't invent rock sharky by any stretch, but she was so good at what she did that everybody thinks that she did <laughs> because she was so dominant in the business at that time, you know, from 1926 and her first venue over the next two decades, she was the star maker of Cairo, but she was building on, a trend that was already underway. And she was a quick learner and she was a very astute businesswoman. You know, what I like to tell people is she was the Ra'ia Hassan of the 1920s. Or Ra'ia Hassan is the Badia Masabni of the 2000s. It's a very similar story if you look at it in that way. Mm, yeah, makes so much sense. Uh, um, if you take a look and sort of compare uh, from, let's say, Gawazi dancing 
to Samia Gamal and Tahir Karioka. It's quite the journey of experimentation and changes. <laughs> and there's another, understand, like um, information that's circling a lot, values communities, in terms of like evolution and progression of dance style, that um, a lot of Western influence happened on Egyptian dance that brought us to modern or beginning of modern work sharky in your opinion how true or not true it is oh we can't deny that there's western influence but we have to look at how and why those western elements came into the dance and what i've been very uh, adamant about in my work is returning the focus to the egyptian creators because the narrative that we've had is that, you know, um, you had foreign tourists visiting and you had uh, European residents in Cairo, and then you had the elites who were very Europeanized. And those consumers dictated these changes. And the reality is much different because what a lot of folks forget when when they talk about this time period is Egypt was under British occupation from 1882 really until 1952 honestly and even a little further than that before the British finally left and at that time that turn of the 19th to 20th century time frame it was a time of intense nationalism in Egypt. Egyptians were really navigating how do we assert who we are culturally and who we are nationally under the boot of this occupation. So much that was happening in art and entertainment at the beginning of the 20th century was a statement about the occupation and who Egyptians wanted themselves to be. Egyptians were very comfortable with taking Western ideas, Western technologies, and integrating those things in, but it was always towards their own interests and their own agendas. You know, I, I always like to tell people who, who state the, you know, it's, it's all Western invention kind of idea, well, then why were so many of the advertisements for these venues in Arabic? Mm. <laughs> these venues are advertising in Arabic because they're advertising to local consumers. And it's those local consumers who are enjoying these hybrid creations. They're fine with them integrating in uh, a foreign dance step and a foreign fabric in their costume because the overall creation is targeted at local aesthetics and local interests, right? And that's why even today, for Egyptians, they claim rock sharky as something authentic, even though it's very clear that it's hybridizing foreign elements. So that cultural and socio-historical context of the occupation is absolutely critical. You know, Nagib al-Rahani, who I mentioned, a lot of his plays were 
uh, nationalistic in nature. They included little songs that the audience would would memorize and then go out from the play and sing these anti-British kind of anthems. So that's the kind of environment in which this dance form began. So it's, it's uh, erroneous when folks say, well, they're pulling from ballet and ballroom. And of course they are, but that doesn't mean it's inauthentic. Hybrid, hybridization does not imply inauthenticity in the minds of the Egyptian consumers. That's a gospel that I will always preach. <laughs> wow, that's such a fascinating like point that you brought up because I just realized, yeah, exa that's exactly the story that when I was just starting ballet dance, what, that's what I learned back then. Like, oh yeah, Badia Masabni opened her cabaret. She brought uh, dance teachers from the West to train local dancers to do ballet. Then she put a show with two-piece costume and all this like ballet-inspired show because she wanted British and French soldiers to come as a customers and spend money in her cabaret. So it was presented as if it was for foreign um uh, audience, but specifically, I loved like the factual point of like, yeah, but advertisements were a lot like in Egyptian Arabic, like they were for local yeah. audience. So that does not make sense. And it's really crazy to think how much misinformation we have. And when we are studying it, how much we actually don't know if it's true or not true. Even if in, in the first glance, it looks like reliable source. It looks like logical, sort of like, okay. But then this time you discover, all oh, right, there's no pieces don't go together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like I mentioned earlier, the cognitive dissonance. Like this doesn't make sense. If they're catering to foreigners, none of whom bothered to learn any Arabic, right? So why then would they advertise everything in, in Arabic script in colloquial Egyptian dialect, right? It's like you said, it doesn't make any sense. Your book uh, literally has the name Egyptian Dance and Transition, the Rock Sharky Revolution, 1890-1930. Why did you highlight exactly those 40 years? ish uh what do you consider as the beginning of this revolution and why you kind of finish it in 1930s sure i well 1890 because it's in the 1890s where we have early concrete documentation of dancers performing the local dance in these entertainment venues right um there is some evidence before that time, but in the 1890s, it's it's concrete, right, and widespread. So observers at the time basically said, you can't stumble into one of these places without finding a dance show, an Egyptian dance show. And the 19, 1930, because at that point, at I'll say the early to mid thirties is when you see really the crystallization of rock sharky as we understand it today, which incidentally is not quite the golden era style of rock sharky because 
if you compare, there's not a lot of footage from the 30s, but there's some. And if you compare it to the heyday of the golden era in the 40s and 50s, there was still a lot of change to come. Um, there's always change, but it's in the in that time frame of the 30s that it's kind of crystallized. And by the end of the 20s, too, you have in Egyptian sources it very clearly the usage of the term raksharki for this stage dance. Um, where before the 20s, sometimes you come across the term raksharki just to refer to the local dance. Um, but really prior to the, around 1900, dance is just rocks or sometimes rocks balladi mm -hmm. or sometimes rocks mastery, but not rock sharky. Mm -hmm. speaking, well, about, <laughs> uh, speaking about evolution and change in dance, uh, what do you think about current situation in dance? Because there are many statements, oh, Raksharki, ballet dance is dying because oh. of the these influences, Mahraganat is taking over and it's kind of Raksharki, but it's not Raksharki and uh, there is no like uh, bands, uh, the culture of dancing to the orchestras and it's, it's kind of dying. So what do you think about today's situation? Oh boy, you know, I am so tempted when I hear that to play like the, the world's smallest violin. Oh no, <laughs> because look, belly dance, I'm using that English, that imperfect English term, right? Because I'm encapsulating like ballady, you know, social dance and gawazi and stage rock sharky, but none of that's ever going away. It's embedded in Egyptian culture. It's just changing and the style is changing, the musical accompaniment is changing, but that has always been the case. And we can't look for this pristine, frozen in aspect dance style. You know, to be honest, that goes for the traditional stylizations too. I like, uh, I, I really, uh, I'm obsessed with, the Gawazi tradition, and I'm doing a lot of research on the the remnants of that tradition that it still exists in Upper Egypt, and that tradition has changed over time tremendously. Like the costuming has changed, um, certain aspects of how the dance is performed have changed in places like Luxor, and that's normal change is a part of a, a living culture you know i think that a lot of uh foreigners they go to egypt like looking for the pristine origin and that's a very um orientalist kind of way of thinking like like it's a museum and we're going to go pluck it off the shelf you know um change is normal it it has changed it will continue to change but I don't think it's dying. It's just evolving into whatever it will be next. And I, you know, I might not like that everybody's dancing the Mahraganad and I may lament the decline of the big orchestras, but it's not up to me, <laughs> you know? It's up to those Egyptian consumers, what they want and what they enjoy, because it's their dance, right? So, yeah, so we've got to just, be okay with change. Change happens. Yeah, so true. 
Well, I know that we can keep talking and talking for hours and I'm already looking forward to part two. We have to continue this discussion. Yeah, I love it. Uh, but I also know like we jumped to like, you know, from one subject to another, like from one part of your dance journey to another very like, you know, sporadically. Uh, but before, before we summarize, I'm really curious to ask what topic or question you wished dancers were asking you more often? What question do I wish they were asking me more often? Wow. Wow, that's a really good question. Well, I know you do a lot of research, so instead of me guessing, you know, I would like to hear about your maybe favorite topic, but you feel it's really overlooked and not brought much attention to, or like some aspect of your research, or maybe not related to research, something else that, you know, you feel like the art is like, oh, but this needs to be known, but nobody really pays yeah. attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I would say anything having to do with current traditional entertainers, so the current Gawazi, um, you know, anybody left alive in Muhammad Ali Street th who has that living memory of what came before, ask me about those things because there's a lot of interest in the industry in Awalaman Gawazi, but it's often being filtered through um, a theatrical folklore lens instead of the that base of the actual traditional entertainers. And a lot of the work I do now, I'm trying to, to draw attention to that reality instead of the workshop and festival idea of Gawazi, the actual Gawazi. Right. Um, that to me is very important um, because I think because those traditional entertainers tend not to uh, be fluent in these these uh, international spaces. They're not bilingual. Um, they don't do Zoom, <laughs> you know, and so they're not as present and so their their perspective is getting disregarded and that's something i i want to raise awareness mm. of and bring attention to what exactly do you mean by that like meaning like dancers asking you i don't know to recommend to go to someone's study in egypt or is it some other aspect of this reality like uh wh why this topic is important for you like why do you try to bring awareness to it Sure. Like, uh, for example, with regards to the Gawazi, like, um, still to this moment, I will read things or hear things like, um, Kyria Mazin is the last of the Gawazi, but she's not. There are others and they exist and they, they have their own family traditions their dance styles are, are, are their own. Um, there's some general thematic similarities among those families, but um, we've been basing 90% of our understanding of quote unquote Goazi on the Mazin family when there are other families. And um, 
I think I love, for, let me be clear, I love Kyrie Madison and anyone who goes to Luxor has to take a lesson with her. But we are, we again, it's sort of that um, museumization where it's like, oh, this is the end. Um, and also because uh, I think we tend to go for what's easiest. So Kyrie Mazin, everybody in the dance industry knows the Mazin family. And so that's where they go when they think of Gawazi. But there are other women and they, I feel they deserve to be known. And um, I think that it helps to broaden our understanding of that style, right? Because we've been building so much of our understanding just from that one family. Mm -hmm. Oh, so interesting. I definitely will pick up some contacts and recommendations from you for upcoming trips <laughs> uh, and do recommend other dancers to do the same, uh, just the same way as I highly recommend for all listeners, if they haven't done so, purchase and read your book. It's like a must, Thanks. must have, must read for all ballet dancers who are trying to navigate this topic or even not trying or not much in research, but you need to learn and understand what it is. It's really iconic. So where is the best place to purchase your book? The best place for you to purchase the book? <laughs> I, you know, it works out the same for me either way. So there, you can purchase it through Amazon, You can also purchase it uh, direct from the publisher, McFarland Books. Um, I actually have links to both uh, on my website. Um, but either way, the, the publisher remunerates me. So um, either way is fine for me. Uh, just for me, what's important is to get the information out there. So yeah, buy the book. <laughs> I also know that you are very active in teaching uh, and sharing information through a bunch of different lectures these days and a lot of online resources. So can you share what's upcoming maybe like for April, May, June, July, any events, any lectures, anything you would like to spread awareness of the dances? Because I'm pretty sure many listeners got interested in trying to learn more and you share like your your research has one big theme but within this theme there are so many different aspects so you highlight so um anything any events any classes that people can join like maybe april may or summertime sure at the time we're recording this um i'm actually mapping out a plan for four upcoming lectures online and um i believe Two of these uh, will be on uh, important figures in the, the history of Egyptian dance. Um, one is going to be a who's who in Egyptian belly dance. The other on uh, lesser known figures. Um, it's looking like these are going to be offered in uh, March or April. The other pair of lectures is uh, one is a lecture on uh, Cairo for belly dance historians, where I kind of do a virtual tour through places in Cairo that you can visit that are relevant to the history we discussed. And the other is still in development, but it, my plan is to lecture on the general history of professional entertainers in Cairo from the Fatimid era till the French conquest mm. because of what I mentioned of being very frustrated with everybody going from pharaonic times to French conquest and ignoring everything in between. So I'm going to talk about the in-between. Um, 
and I suppose uh, I, I should mention my Patreon. Uh, I do have a Patreon where I share a lot of writing and uh, lectures that are exclusive to the patrons. Um, and it is a place where uh, I do post a lot about my ongoing work. So that's a great place if you're really into historical subjects. Um, I post there monthly. Um, and last but not least, I, I, I am in process of my the second book. And uh, yeah, oh God, <laughs> I, it stresses me out just to talk about it. Um, but the initial draft is complete. It's in peer review right now. And once it's back from peer review, I have a lot of work to do on edits. Um, my final draft is due in May, but this book probably won't see the light of day till 2024. <laughs> um, it's a slow process, but and uh, I would encourage everybody just follow my social media because I'm a, I'm kind of superstitious and I'm not really ready to talk a lot about specifics, but in general, what the book is focused on is the spaces of belly dance performance in Cairo um, from, again, that Fatiman time until the modern era. So it's very broad, much broader in scope in terms of time than the last book. And it's much more oriented in uh, about place than, than just about the dance itself. But uh, who labor of love. <laughs> Well, thank you for teasing us and sharing it. That's all exciting. I completely understand and feel you like, okay, let's not talk too much in advance about things that are coming. But thank you for giving the teaser a little <laughs> taste of what's coming. That's great. And that will definitely include links to your social media as well as to, uh, to your website, official website, uh, to the um, show notes of this episode. So all listeners, you know, you can easily find them there and connect. And I'll be keeping an eye and looking forward to seeing which lectures I can catch up because the topic that you mentioned uh, for the nearest few months, you Sounds really, really, really interesting and exciting. Before I also ask you our final closing question of the podcast, I also want to once again to thank you for both things. For first of all, uh, doing the work that you are doing and digging into research and trying to spread awareness and uh, highlight things that are misunderstood or misinterpreted uh, or just spreading like misinformation that we have so thank you for doing that and putting it all together i know it is definitely labor of love <laughs> what you do <laughs> and secondly of course uh, thank you for spending time today with us and sharing uh, so generously a lot of information from your work i know it's just a little part from the entire research and knowledge and work that you do but it's already a lot so i'm really grateful for for your time and for being so open to discuss really wide range of topics <laughs> that we had today thank you so much for the invitation i mean i am always happy to talk about this subject matter but this is a really fun conversation so thank you uh, i'm very glad to hear it so i would like to close our conversation with one traditional question i don't know if you know about it or not but there is one question which i ask every single guest regardless of what was the main topic of our discussion our conversation and the question is 
what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years what makes me fall in love with it over and over again is the fact that i know that i will never know everything that's the that's the the best answer i can give you there's always more to know it's like an onion that I keep peeling and it, I never get to the middle. <laughs> That's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. The more people get inspired, the better it is for our dance community. Until next time, keep shimming and see you soon.